Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Booth One, our adventures in the art of lively conversation. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, and this marks our 20th episode. It's hard to believe we've made it this far, and our popularity continues to grow. It's just 12 days before Thanksgiving, and we are so very grateful to our listeners and subscribers for supporting Booth One over these past many months. I am most thankful to be welcoming the stuffing to my turkey, the gravy to my mashed potatoes, my co-host, Roscoe. How are you, Roscoe? I'm terrific. I feel like the orange rind in your cranberry relish as well. Mm. How's that? Happy pre-Thanksgiving. Thank you. Happy pre-Thanksgiving to you. You know, I have a very special Thanksgiving treat for you. We have a mystery guest in our studio. Can you can you guess who it is? Um, might he reside in, I'm guessing, Midlothian, Illinois? You're very warm. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yes, that cornucopia of knowledge. Uh, welcome back to the show, our friend George. Hi, George. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me back again. Oh, well, it's a pleasure. It's very tough to get you in from the suburbs. And when we do have you in, we always like to have you show up here at the studio and be part of our podcast. I know Thanksgiving is also one of your favorite holidays. Yes. Cooking and whatnot. Uh, throughout the show, I'm going to have some very special uh, Thanksgiving thoughts thoughts about cooking and some jokes, maybe a little bit of trivia or something. But first, I want to start off today with uh, a, t- a typical segment that we have been doing for quite some time now, the keys to the Carly. Did either of you watch the uh, GOP debate? You know? I could barely read the newspaper coverage. Why is that? Oh, it's because it's the Republican debate. You're not interested in the reality TV aspect of it? No, no, no. Are you going to watch the Democratic debate tonight? Not if I don't have to. You're not interested in politics at all, are you? <laughs> well, you know, it's a year away. It is, but I, this I mean, is the run-up It's to not it. like we have to vote ten times before Election Day. It's true. I just find it fascinating to watch these uh, candidates go after each other and watch some of them burst into flames. Now, um, <laughs> well, um, well, that's true. Among, <laughs> among GOP voters, Mr. Trump was declared the winner with 28%. This is no. just among GOP voters uh, with 23% naming uh, Marco Rubio. He came across very, very well in the debate, well, as well as he possibly could, if you like that kind of politics. Um, he was followed very close by Mr. Cruz um, at 16%, and then Mr. Carson at 14%. He didn't come across well at all. He seemed droopy and, well, asleep most of the time. You, you know what I'm talking about, I Roscoe. do, I do. Yeah. Was this the grain, the, the, the pyramids were used to store grain? Was this this debate? <laughs> that, that, that had actually happened a little earlier um, in the week, but it, it, was, it was the debate that followed those, uh, those remarks without question. Rand Paul and Carly Fiorina were named winners by only 7% of the GOP debate viewers, and Jeb Bush... Three percent, and your dark horse pick for the nomination, Roscoe John Kasich, two percent. I'm sorry to tell you. I, well, you know, there's been this. You can all, uh, you can all change. It there's can all been change. this chat among the candidates about how they did not care for these gotcha questions from past debates. Have you read about this, yes. George? What do you think? Do you think those questions are valid to these candidates or not? Well, I don't understand in the first place. You know, I did read an editorial of the Tribune that basically said, you know, they shoot themselves in the foot. They win a victory of some kind with the media and their complaints, and then they go on and on about it. But the reality of the situation is still the same. 
if you think the media is asking hard questions, what do you think the electorate is going to ask you? Well, exactly right. And what do you think the press is going to ask you when you get to be president? Well... Those press conferences are not always very kind or easy to go to and to answer questions for. And these are easy questions. Right. As Obama said, these, how are these people going to confront Putin and Khrushchev if they can't confront the CNBC anchor people? I'm banging my shoe on the table. <laughs> I've done that before, like Nikita Khrushchev. Well, you'd think people running for office would be happy to get any free media attention, but many Republicans have condemned the debates, particularly these gotcha questions, which... I don't see them as gotcha questions. They're just they're just provocative ones. They're just questions out there that you might hear from, as you say, any of your constituents, anybody at a town hall meeting in Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina. Most people tune in for the spectacle, like I do, of what we call presidential survivor, <laughs> in which <laughs> the most quick-witted, social media-savvy candidates move to center stage. Now, wouldn't it be great if after each debate the candidates got to kick one of them off the island, yes. off, off the stage, off the podium. I think that would be fan- in, in essence, the voters get to do that, but these people with 2 3 4% of approval ratings right now, and as you say, George, it's a year away, why are, why are, they, why are they still plugging away? Clear the, clear the field. Clear the, clear the field for front runners so that we can focus on something. The probing questions and the frenzied media coverage are good for democracy, I think, and by knocking candidates off their talking points, and it's very hard to do, Ted Cruz especially, you can ask him, you can ask him, what color do you think the sky is today, uh, Mr. Cruz? And he'll say, first of all, let me say about immigration that it, it, they all just want to get to their talking points so that these questions that are outside the realm of what their campaigns have tried to focus them into seem like, well, you're trying to screw me up. You're trying to get me to say things that I don't really mean. You're trying to make me look foolish. Well, I didn't really make them look foolish. But by knocking them off these talking points, these questions make the endless cycle of debates worth watching, I think. They're really fun and possibly revelatory. I learn a lot about each of these candidates by the way they can't answer questions that they haven't been coached and trained to do. And most important, the debates have attracted Americans to politics, which might motivate people to vote. Mm. Republicans or Democrats, I don't even care which, as long as they get out there and they get themselves to the voting booth. Well, and the ratings have continued to be enormously high, right? Enormously high, yeah. So there's a great deal of interest. I I just find them painful. It's not that I'm disinterested in politics or uninterested. I Just the the current pool of people that we have running for the Republican nomination are mostly deeply frightening to me, and mm. I find it upsetting. Mm-hmm. How, how, how can this be? How can the United States of America have these clowns and buffoons and pathological liars running for president be considered legitimate contenders instead of yeah. marginal, insane people? They're the but, top but, ten. But tell me, what is the key to Carly this week? The key to Carly is that... She looked much better at this debate (laughs) than she did at the previous one, where her hair was some sort of helmet thing, and her makeup was very strident, and she looked pale and ghostly-like. This week on the debate, she actually looked more 
She looked like a human being, first of all. Her hair had movement to it when she shook her head. But she also, very much like Ted Cruz, will not actually answer a direct question with a direct answer. She'll always answer it with, okay, what was the talking point I needed to get in in these two hours? Regardless of what you're going to ask me, the next thing I'm going to talk about is... X, Y, or Z, and, and, and then, she'll, then she'll just do it. And I, no wonder she's plummeting in the polls. At any rate, I find them fascinating, and I watch them with a detached persona of just looking at them as kind of entertainment, because I don't really care who the nominee is going to be. I just want to see them fall off one by one by one and get killed off like in The Hunger Games or in Survivor. Uh, it, it, it's, it's fascinating. I would encourage both of you to give it one more try at the next one. You'll, you'll, don't roll your eyes, Joy. You, we can hear that when you roll your eyes the, that high. You can edit it out, too. I, I may have to edit yeah. it out. Well, and they're, they're, I agree with Roscoe. My problem with the whole thing is the same thing. It's it's the deeply frightening statements that they're making that makes it difficult to watch them because, A, it raises my blood pressure to unhealthy levels, and B, it's, it seems to be 90% of the time in, contrary to the Constitution. This is a, a gaggle of buffoons that we have to pick <laughs> from, and it seems disgraceful that this is what we present to the rest of the world. They must think we're absolutely nuts. I won't dwell on this any longer, really, just to say that it was what was really interesting was that virtually every candidate mentioned the Hillary campaign or when Hillary's president or if Hillary gets to be president. No one talked about any other Democratic candidate other than Hillary. So they're all pretty much assuming that she's got the nomination wrapped up. I think that that may be a misstep on their part because there's a long way to go, as you say, a long way to go. But they're all gearing themselves up to be anti-Hillary. There was another story in the news. This is a local story out of Fox Lake, Illinois. Fox Lake is a small village suburb northwest of Chicago, uh, fairly wooded, rural. There's a lot of water up there lake-wise. Uh, it's a lovely, a lovely part of Illinois. Uh, a few uh, months ago during the summer, a Fox Lake policeman, uh, a lieutenant, was shot and killed. I bring this story up because there's been recent developments this week. They have now determined that he was not shot and killed by these three perpetrators who they felt chased him into this wooded area. The fact of the matter is that he killed himself. Mm. There's been so much of an outpouring of uh, feeling for the family and for this officer. But as it turns out, uh, he'd been uh, stealing from the city of Fox Lake for quite some time, a couple of years now, and felt that it was about to get blown, and he took his own life and made it look like, through his training with forensics and crime scenes, staged it so that it looked like there'd been a scuffle and that he'd been attacked, and that he'd been shot in the chest. And, uh, and, and then didn't he contact the police and say, oh my God, I've been chasing three men, and they've shot me, and they've run off? He made that report. I, I just feel such a, such a betrayal. I think the media was more involved with the betrayal than... The media seemed to run with the story in a somewhat loose fashion, whereas they probably could have downplayed it a bit more. And I think the police themselves in that village mishandled it they obviously now they're coming out with the revelation that in fact they could tell from the position he was in that something was amiss well if you think something's amiss then 
don't stand by quietly and let this hoopla and hero worship start when you know it's going to end this way. Shortly after this happened, there was a speculation it might be a suicide in his son said, oh my God, this is outrageous. How would you, in our pain and our misery, you would suggest that my father committed suicide? And then I think that clammed the media up for a bit. Apparently, other officers in that police department knew this guy was a bad apple. He also had so, some accomplices. There were other people involved. In, perhaps family in, members. Perhaps so. I was profoundly, profoundly affected by the news that came out this week about this. I have a number of friends who live up in that area, not directly in Fox Lake, but in that part of Illinois and in southern Wisconsin, and they were all very scared when the fugitives were about, the three guys that they were looking for for days and days and days, weeks, mm-hmm. helicopters and armored vehicles. And the, and there was a great deal of fear and anxiety up there and a great, again, outpouring of mm-hmm. love and support. I don't know what else is going to come from this, uh, and I don't know what his family is going to do. I agree with you. I think it's the level of complete sham and artifice to the whole thing that is so shocking. Yeah, it's like a giant punch to the stomach. You've involved the villages on lockdown, the schools are in lockdown. The police were obviously in positions where three people don't disappear out of thin air unless they're Judge Crater, for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> True. Earlier in the uh, broadcast, I mentioned that I was going to touch upon a few Thanksgiving tidbits. And All right. This might be a good time for some Thanksgiving tidbits. There's much to give thanks about in this country. Here's a little joke. A man in Dallas, he calls his son in New York just before Thanksgiving, and he says, I am sorry to tell you, but your mother and I are going to get a divorce. I just cannot take any more of her moaning. She can't stand the sight of me, and I can't stand the sight of her. I'm telling you first, Eddie, because you are the eldest, so please tell your sister. So Eddie calls his sister Julie in Chicago, and she says, no way are they getting divorced. We have to go see them for Thanksgiving. So Julie phones the parents in Dallas and says, you must not get divorced. Promise me you won't do anything until we get there. We'll both be there with you tomorrow. Until then, don't take any action, please. The father puts down the phone, and he turns to his wife, and he says, good news. Eddie and Julie are coming for Thanksgiving, and they're paying their own way. (laughs) (laughs) Things to be thankful for. At this time of year, many people go out to eat for Thanksgiving as opposed to cooking at home. There's been uh, something in the news recently about abolishing tipping in restaurants. Now, I go out to dinner all the time. Roscoe, I know you're out at restaurants quite, quite often. George, you have been out to a restaurant, haven't you? Yes. Recently? Recently. So there's this movement afoot about tipping. Trend-setting restaurateur Danny Mayer uh, last week rocked the hospitality world by proclaiming he will eliminate gratuities at his 13 eateries by the end of next year. He said that tipping is demeaning and leads to unbalanced wages among restaurant workers since it excludes the kitchen staff and the hostesses. So he'll raise prices by about 20% and he'll distribute the proceeds equally. Customers won't have to rack their brains computing percentages in the dim light after a wine-soaked meal. <laughs> That's always difficult. And, and, and servers can earn a living wage without having to grovel. I think I'm in favor of this. If, if the restaurateur can provide the servers with a living wage 
and they can eliminate this idea of tipping by the customers who always under you know, many people under tip. It's hardly even worth serving them, and then you, you know you get disgruntled waitstaff. What, what do you think, Roscoe? Would you be in favor of of paying a little bit more for your food if you didn't then have to deal with the gratuity at the end? Yes, and I think I think his point is accurate. It is equitable. It's been many years since I worked in the restaurant industry, but I worked I worked for some high end restaurants back in the day, and I knew this is what happened. It was a restaurant where people were lucky to. It was a hundred dollar person, right? So twenty yeah. percent tip meant the waitress or the server was getting twenty dollars per person that she waited on. While the kitchen staff was making minimum wage, because you know what? There are a whole lot of people who would be more than happy to work in a kitchen for minimum wage. So you did have that disproportion where you had a kitchen staff who also probably, many of whom spoke English as the second language. And so it's not fair that they work just as hard or harder for a, a much, much smaller paycheck at the end of the day. Yeah. So I think it's a good idea. George, what do you think about this tipping solution or this abolishment of tipping in favor of larger prices for your for your dinner. I'm not sure I get the whole thing to begin with because it, it's clear that perhaps they should have been paying better wages from the get-go because mm. it is very difficult work. Mm. Second of all, we're already overpaying for the food we get in restaurants to begin with. So now it's going to re-raise 20%. That seems a bit outrageous. I think that when you go into a restaurant, you're the concept, at least as far as I'm concerned with tipping, is that you realize that that it's a very difficult job and they're doing something of service to you. And so it should be an equitable reward if you get good service. And equally, you should be able to demonstrate your displeasure if you get bad service. It's the only way we have, other than engaging the maitre d' or the owner, and nobody wants to do that. But the difference between good service and bad service is extremely subjective. Good service to one person is bad service to another. One man's ceiling is another man's floor. I've said that before. Rich Cromwell and the Federalists said waiting on tables, and this is in support of uh, what you're saying, uh, George, waiting on tables can be more lucrative than other restaurant work for good reason. Unlike dishwashers, serving is an art whose best practitioners rightly get rewarded for their skill. Tipping encourages servers to form a personal bond with customers, and it makes restaurant patrons feel good since they're rewarding another human being for attentive service. There's two sides to this argument. I, I, I wouldn't mind going to a restaurant now and then that did not have tipping and that the gratuity was built in. But, but it, it could also work... Well, two things. It could also work in the customer's favor. Is it true that... Does the, the, is TIP an acronym for to, in, to ensure promptness? Or did yeah. I make that up? No, I believe you're right. The other thing you can do but to ensure promptness is you slip the bartender a 10 and he'll slip you an extra shot of vodka five minutes later. <laughs> so it works in my favor, too. And you know this from personal experience. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think the other side of it is that it's also become... I guess, you know, you assume at some point that there's there should be some equitable equitable distribution of the wealth, especially in high-end restaurants. But obviously that doesn't happen. It's also taken tipping to the ridiculous level. Going into Starbucks and having to tip is just beyond the The pay. tip jar at Starbucks, it really... It, 
really you know, gets my goat. Yeah. It's one thing if you have a jar out and you're collecting for a charity. It's quite another because you've made coffee, for God's sakes. It's it ludicrous. The, they even have them at Dunkin' Donuts now. At some restaurants, they actually pool their tips, and then they yes. split them with the back staff, back waiters, uh, the kitchen staff. Um, and the bus boys, the bus boys. Mm. Yeah, that's you, that's a generally more equitable way yes. of doing things. You and I went out, and and our producer went out for a extremely pricey dinner a week or so ago, and boy, did that waiter make a lot of money. And I thought that waiter put far more money in his pocket from us than was really merited by the work that he actually did to bring us our food? The way that restaurant is laid out, it wouldn't surprise me if they also pool their tips. And consequently, the other side of the coin is in dining out, you, people always stay longer than they assume. So at least when you go to the tipping process, you feel that you have to at least give a little bit more if you've been one of those people that stay extra long because they've lost out another table than right. they could have gotten a tip at. If you, if you have the class to think about right. that, not everyone does. Speaking of eating out, you know that the Butterball Turkey Company has a turkey talk line that you can call on Thanksgiving morning or the day before to ask them questions or see if they can help you with your turkey problem. Once when a Butterball talk line staffer asked, trying to determine whether the turkey was fully frozen or semi-frozen, asked the caller what state her turkey was in. The caller responded, <laughs> Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they get tons of those things. Now, My favorite has always been the one where someone calls in about, now how do you get the dishwashing liquid off the turkey after you've cleaned it? <sighs> no. Oh, yes. Oh, Lord. Now, George... Did I hear correctly before we sat down to do our podcast that you now are the proud owner of a dog? Yes. How? how? I'm not the owner. I'm the nanny. <laughs> You're the nanny. Yes. You're the dog nanny. Yeah. Well, basically, yes. I'm the da- yeah. I'm the nanny. And and how's that going? Uh, slowly but surely. It's a it's a puppy. It's a very small, yeah, it's a very young puppy, eight months, and it's a very high-energy puppy. But not small. Yes, it's reasonably small. Oh, reasonably small. Yeah, it's about the size of a, of a hound. High energy. And, very and, high and energy. And you decided to get a dog at your advanced age. Well, we didn't know the dog was high energy. <laughs> Though the dog's original name was Bounce, which should have probably been the first clue. <laughs> Bounce? Bounce. <laughs> it has now been renamed. But what to what? Penny. Oh, oh. If the penny bounces. Basically. <laughs> Does the dog know its name has been changed? Well, of course. The Does, dog is responds this confusing to, it. to a dog? No, 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 no. What if I started calling you Peter? <laughs> well, it would confuse me. But I also have a working knowledge of English, whereas the dog does not. Exactly. Well, you know, but dogs are visual. They're not necessarily... We we talk to dogs, but they're not necessarily understanding us. They understand commands, but but essentially they're visual animals. And the dog is young enough that even a name change, it's going to be able to adapt to that. Well, yeah, they just give them names so that they can call them something. Yeah, but if if your dog was like blocks down the street standing at the stop sign and you wanted to call your dog, if if you called your dog, if you yelled, bounce, come here, bounce, 
would the dog come, or does it now only answer to, to Penny? No, I imagine it would, but we don't. Well, I want you to be aware of something. Oh, no. Since 2004, at least 10 Americans have been accidentally shot by dogs. Shot? <laughs> My God. Well, there's no guns in the house, so the dog can't shoot me. The latest canine shooting occurred in Indiana last week uh, when a woman left her loaded shotgun on the ground and her dog, guess what the dog's name was? Not Bounce. Trigger. Trigger. (laughs) (laughs) And her dog, Trigger, stood on it, blasting her in the left foot. And killed her? Oh, no. It's a foot. (laughs) I don't, I don't think it killed her. It just um, shot by well, the dog. Well, maybe gangrene set in, and then she died. But I heard that you'd gotten a dog, and I thought... Uh, Do you have to walk uh, the dog? No, thank God I you have a yard. Let it out in the backyard. Yes, it uh, has a yard. And does it run around, and you throw a ball, and it... Yes. Plays fetch? But it, it gets disinterested. She gets disinterested in that. What is she... Because it's a highly intelligent breed. It needs a lot more. It, it they, they are sheep. Herders. Okay. So I'm essentially the sheep, only I'm not really a sheep. But she wants to herd me. How does this work? Well, do you, do you go in the backyard while she runs circles around you, pushing <laughs> you from one corner of the yard to the next? Basically, or she corners me. Now, what kind of dog is this, George? Well, they think it's part Gordon Setter uh, and part some kind of hound. They're notorious shooters, you know. I've never Gordon Setter. <laughs> yes, I've, oh, I've never heard of what is a Gordon Setter? Is that like an Irish Setter, but from ha, uh, Scott Scotland? I think it's, oh, a, it's okay. of the Setter family. Usually, sort of a square head. Uh, is it black with brown, mm-hmm. brown like brown spots, oh, yes. brown markings? Okay. Yeah, longish wavy hair. Yes, absolutely. Very... Well, you be careful, George. No, yes. Uh, I know you don't have any firearms in the house, but that doesn't mean there aren't any in your neighborhood. Is there anything about knifings from dogs? I might be able to get some knives off In all my research, I found nothing about anybody being knifed by a dog. Well, so far she hasn't attacked us at night like in our beds. A disappointed woman called Butterball's Thanksgiving turkey talk line, wondering why her turkey had no breast meat. After a conversation with an operator, it became apparent that the woman's turkey was lying on the table upside down. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a story. There's been this rash of, well, I don't even know what to call it, controversy about actors, especially movie star actors, in Broadway shows not knowing their lines and having to use not only teleprompters, but earpieces. Al Pacino, star of David Mamet's Moose Murders. <laughs> is that what it says? I mean, China Doll, sorry. <laughs> uh, is being fed dialogue through his Bluetooth earpiece with cables running to the seven, seven teleprompters that are arranged around the set. Over at the Gin Game, James Earl Jones and Cicely Tyson are, to some rumor, wired up, but she's 90 and he's 84, so in some fashion that's kind of forgivable. Less forgivable, however, is Bruce Willis, who sports an earpiece the size of a cell phone, according to Michael Rydell, um, circa 1984, (laughs) in, in misery. Now, he's only 60, fairly much a spring chicken in Broadway years, but spies uh, who've seen it say it feels like a play by Harold Pinter. The excellent Laurie Metcalf says a line, and there is a pause before Bruce Willis then speaks his lines. What is going on on Broadway? What, what, this, what have you this, heard? This is terrible. Well, I, 
I, a couple of things. I have heard that Al Pacino has gotten better, and is Al Pacino is in his mid seventies now too, Indeed. so he's not a spring chicken either. Uh, but I, I walked by the theater where his show is appearing, and oh my, hundreds of people show up to try to get a glimpse of him at the stage door, and apparently he eats it up, and and sort of comes out and and like bows and says thank you and smiles at people and hugs them, doesn't doesn't sign autographs, but apparently looks a little doddering. But I've heard that people show up because they want to see an Al Pacino play. And the show is so awful that by the intermission, they thought, well, I've seen Al Pacino in the flesh. We can go now. But what and, about, and, but what and, about and, this teleprompter well, and earpiece thing? It, apparently, he's gotten better, and he's more off of book. Now, they've delayed uh, opening two weeks now Yeah, for them to, uh, I, I guess, work on the play. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's sad. This wouldn't have happened back in the day. You know, Ethel Barrymore couldn't have had cue cards on stage. Well, it's funny you should mention that because um, we've come a long way from, say, like Mary Martin struggling through a play she did called Legends in 1986, wearing a primitive earpiece during Washington, D.C. performances. Apparently, she could hear taxi dispatches in her ear at times. Marion Seldes, uh, the actress Marion Seldes, George, had a small speaker installed in her chair on the set of Deuce in 2007. And at an early preview, there was an awkward pause, and Marion turned to her chair and shouted, What? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> just a, Angela Lansbury, uh, who's uh, open about using such devices, uh, used them in her hair in Blythe Spirit uh, in a recent revival in 2009, and she was brilliant, and the audience was none the wiser, but she... You know, she didn't have it in her ears. She just needed some help with some of her lines. And Cicely Tyson, well, she's a master of the earpiece. She wore one in A Trip to Bountiful. You saw that show, yes. Roscoe. And was fed not only lines, but sometimes her blocking. But did it matter? No. She won the Tony Award that year. So there is precedent for this type of thing going on. But again, these are sort of aging actors and actresses, sometimes of the stage in the theater, sometimes of television and the movies. I, I, I don't like this trend. Uh, no, it's terrible. Learn your lines. Learn, learn your lines or get off the stage. You know, for heaven's sakes, I can't imagine. Do, does, one, does one suppose that Christopher Plummer, when he was doing Lear a couple of years ago up in Stratford, was using an earpiece? Now at this stage, is it just because the technology is available? Or I imagine that actors and actresses have used idiot cards, if nothing else, if they were... Well, Down, well, you know, weren't up to their lines. Yeah. But you, you know what this harkens back to is we, we have to blame Barbara Streisand. Okay. This is our weekly segment, Blame Barbara Streisand. She did, you know why she didn't perform for many, many, many years? No. Because she was doing her concert in Central Park in the 60s, and she went up on lyrics, and it terrified her. So she didn't, she didn't hit the concert stage for 30 years. Now, if you see Barbara Streisand in concert... Every word that she says is on a monitor in front of her. Monitors all over the theater. I would think that would take something away from a performance because sometimes you've just got to come up with the words. It's, it's got to be in your heart and in your gut or otherwise you're just saying words. So if you're relying on a script to get you through, then nothing's natural, nothing's organic, nothing's felt. But I will tell you, I saw the gin game. I, I couldn't tell that they were being fed lines. Well, it's, it's possible that because of their age, um, that they were had these earpieces just in case they'd gone up on a line. 
mm-hmm. and it could be fed to them in their ear. It doesn't sound like that's the case with Al Pacino and Bruce Willis. It sounds like they're getting fed. He's getting fed line after line after line quite often. I mean, he must know some of the lines. Mm-hmm. Let's face it. He's been rehearsing and he's right. read the script, don't you think? Well, no. He's a television and movie actor. He's probably not had to memorize anything in his life. Well, he'd had to memorize... I mean, going back to the others, I mean, you assume with James Earl Jones or Cicely Tyson or Angela Lansbury that most of this is probably nothing more than age. They've done this all of their lives. They know how to memorize lines and give a performance without any additional implements. Correct. Bruce Willis probably shouldn't be on the stage in the first place. At 60? In any capacity, because he's never really been a theatrical actor. Well, true, but I assume that he's Just because, selling tickets. Well, of course. I mean, it all goes back to that. If you can get somebody to come on Broadway and you can sell tickets, well, sure, they're going to let them do a show. But So you can go back to Keokuk and say, we saw Bruce Willis in a play. Yeah, and it's not like he's doing Death of a Salesman. It's misery, for God's sakes. Which, why would you want to sit and watch that on the stage anyway? I have no answer for you. Well, I mean, I'm just, you know, it was a rhetorical question. But some producers felt that it's worth $10 million to put it up on the stage. They're paying 10, it's $10 million to put Bruce Willis on the stage? I, I would think that a play of that size with those actors, probably some, something in that neighborhood yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah, 8 to $10 million. And, it, and it's doing very well. Plus, you know, that includes marketing and, and promotion oh, and all of that. But yeah, it's not, it's not cheap. I was in a room this morning with Terrence McNally. But mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> who was giving a little bit of a talk at a small bookstore here in downtown Evanston, Illinois, not very far from where we live. So I decided to wander over and sit in and listen to him. And one of the things that I found fascinating that he talked about in his middle of his career. He had an arrangement with a theater company in New York, and their arrangement was such that they would say, we will produce your next play. This is before he'd written a word or anything, and this went on for 10 years. So what a joy and what a load off one's uh, conscience and, and mind to say, well, I just need to write a good play and I have a place to produce it. He has said, did say this morning that it's not that way anymore. There is such competition to get your play seen and read and, and produced. There's no guarantees. There's people out there just dying to get their play put up. And um, even though he's Terrence McNally and has a track record of decades and decades of brilliant, brilliant work, there's no guarantee that his next play will get written about and produced and nu- numerous Tony Awards, to his credit. I-, I wanted to mention something about, as as we're talking about theater, George, you were in a production of, am I wrong about this? Or maybe it's Roscoe. Were you in a production of The Christmas Schooner? Yes. You were, weren't you? How, you did that for several years, did you no, not? No, I, I did it only for one year, but I was in the, the original professional production. So I am on, I'm in the Wikipedia listing. Get out of here. Schooner is having originated that role. Uh-huh. 
a brief side note about that. In January, a local theater here called the Mercury Theater will stage a musical in development for some, for some two decades called The Man Who Murdered Sherlock Holmes. Why do I mention this and what does this have to do with anything? It was conceived years ago by John Rieger and the late Julie Shannon, best known for their partnership on right. The Christmas Schooner. Julie Shannon has passed away now, but the musical tells the story of what happened when the writer Arthur Conan Doyle decided to kill off his most famous fictional character. So they're going to finally mount this thing, and it's by the authors of The Christmas Schooner. I think that's kind of cool. That's, yes, that's fantastic. They're very talented. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful show, The Christmas Schooner. Uh, The executive director at the Mercury uh, said that The Man Who Murdered Sherlock Holmes will have its premiere in January. Also said that a new equity production of Mel Brooks, The Producers, will open in March at the Mercury. So good things happening at the Mercury Theater. That's right next door to the... um, the Music Box Theater, where they show old movies. Yes. Uh, I know you're a frequent yeah. visitor can I, there. Can I, can I throw in something here? Well, by all I means. I went to Julie Shannon's memorial service because the poor woman had to... I'm not really a musician, and I had to sing in the original production of Christmas Schooner, and they, they used to call me Roscoe Find-A-Beat Fraser <laughs> because the idea of singing on the beat, knowing the difference between a quarter note and a half note was beyond me. Oh my gosh, there was, there was a certain section where she had to drill and drill and drill me to try to get the rhythm right, and it, it forever eluded me. But she, you know, she didn't hate me for being untalented. She liked me and was a wonderful person. Went to her memorial service at the Mercury Theater. And who gets up to speak? But they say, ladies and gentlemen, the governor of Illinois. And the governor got up and read a proclamation to her, and it was deeply moving. And then her mentor from the BMI Writers Workshop came, who was Sheldon Harnick, who wrote Fiddler on the Roof. And I just, I about, I had no idea. She'd never mentioned that he was her mentor. And she flew in all the way from New York because he cared so much about her. Sad, but a sort of a booth one experience. Very much, very much. (laughs) Well, that'll be interesting to see, this uh, new musical. Speaking of theater, as we're still in that genre, I I wanted to mention a couple of other things. Robert Falls, who is the longtime artistic director of the Goodman Theater here in Chicago, Robert Falls is going to be inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame on November 16th at the Gershwin Theater in New York. Falls' uh, fellow 2015 honorees are, uh, it's auspicious, um, Lynn Ahrens and uh, Stephen Flaherty of songwriting fame, including Ragtime, playwright Tony Kushner of the Angels in America playwright fame, director Julie Taymor, among other things, she directed Lion King, lighting designer, longtime lighting designer and Broadway, Ken Billington, veteran publicist Merle Dubusky, and actors Stacey Keach and the late uh, Roger Reese. Oh. You know, qualifications for this is, is you have to have 25 years of distinguished service in the American theater and have at least five major Broadway credits, uh, which a benchmark that Falls has just reached. So congratulations, Bob Falls, the big guy, going to be the in the guy, Theater Hall yeah. of Fame. Have you heard about Patti LuPone and Christine Ebersol? Uh, you just... I- this just came. This is brand new news. Two of uh, Broadway's most acclaimed divas. Have you heard about them, no. George? You, really? Would you be interested in seeing Patti LuPone and Christine Ebersole on stage together? Sure. What like, are they doing? Coming to Chicago's Goodman Theater in June to star in a new, likely Broadway-bound musical about the famous rivalry. You'll enjoy this, George. Between two giants 
in the cutthroat world of cosmetics, Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden. Oh, no. <laughs> I would have thought it would have been something about Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons. Guess but... what the name of this thing is? War Paint. Oh. <laughs> Perfect. It has a score by composer Scott Frankel and lyricist Michael Corey, and a book by Doug Wright. The trio collaborated on another really wonderful show called Grey Gardens. Oh, oh yes. Also with Christine Ebersole. Uh, the director will be Michael Greif, who staged both the original productions of Rent and Next to Normal. War Paint is set in the 1930s and tells the story of Rubenstein and Arden, who famously despised each other and their attempts to rise in the male-dominated business of female beautification. The musical was inspired by a 2004 book called The Powder and the Glory. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm surprised you haven't read that, George. It sounds like right up your alley. I didn't I know I think that. there was something years ago in Vanity Fair about their rivalry. Yeah. Ebersol and Lupone, they're each big box office draws. They both have connections to Chicago. Ebersol grew up in the North Shore and Poop Lapone worked with David Mamet in Chicago, and she's credited a much of her renaissance in the business um, in her career with her work at the Ravinia Festival. In fact, I saw her do Gypsy up there just a few yeah, years but ago. She did five Sondheim yeah. shows in a row there, right? In the, in the last decade. Without, yeah, absolutely. Now, Roscoe, I have another traditional holiday uh, Thanksgiving uh, anecdote for you. Um, this comes from John Stewart. He once said, I celebrated Thanksgiving in an old-fashioned way. I invited everyone in my neighborhood to my house. We had an enormous feast, and then I killed them and took their land. (laughs) (laughs) The old-fashioned way. Briefly, we're uh, getting to be close to our time here, but I know you just took a trip to New York and you saw several shows. Uh, I want to touch just on one of them because we don't have time for all of them. You saw A View from the Bridge, uh, Arthur Miller's play, which has just opened in in New York. Your thoughts? I thought it was one of the greatest productions I've ever seen. How so? It was thrilling from start to finish. The audience was on the edge of their seats. A friend of mine had seen it and said you could, you could hear a pin drop. So he gave me a heads up so I was able to get a ticket the day before the reviews hit. And they're actually selling tickets on the, on the stage. And it was a show that as the end, and they also tell you it's two hours, there is no intermission. You cannot leave your seat. And as the show progressed, you could see the audience sitting straighter and straighter in their seats until they were, people were leaning forward. People were leaning forward with their hands to their face. Oh my. And it's, it's, it's a very bold, very stylized production. Very At, blank stage, kind of a boxing ring-like looking. It, it's it's stage. played in what looks like a. Someone said like a col- like the Colosseum, like where the gladiators. Surrounded fought. by benches or something. It's surrounded by a plexiglass wall all the way around. That's about uh, a foot high. That contains contains all the actors. They're all trapped within the space and can never get beyond. And these the actors walls. are all in sort of modern dress, and they're all barefoot. They're all bare. Yes, yes. And I will. Crazy. Ta- and we we will talk about it at length in a future podcast, but I will tell you, all of the major roles are moveovers from the production of The Young Vic in London. The leading actor gives a, a sensational performance. This man is in magnificent shape. I mean, this is a performance on steroids. Mark Strong. I'll just end with this, and this is the, the end of my thrilling note. Uh, I saw the show last night. The reviews came out yesterday morning. The could not have been more of a rave review in the New York Times, the 
writer, the reviewer for the New York Times said this is what the Greeks must have felt when they saw tragedies performed for the first time to experience the catharsis. The show has a stunning conclusion, and this is always corny to say, but so true, an immediate thunderous ovation for the entire cast. When the cast goes off, the lead actor comes back on stage, stands in the center of the stage alone while the audience stood and cheered, and he seemed to have a hard time keeping it together. He looked like he was deeply, deeply moved by this ovation. And, and this would have been the morning that he just became, you know, the toast, the, the day that he became the toast of New York. Yeah, from what I've read, it's very visceral, very emotional, very impactful for the performers as well as for the spectators who are feeding off that energy that the performers, the actors are, are putting out there. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, Thank people, you people didn't want to leave the theater. They kept talking to each other. And it's at the Historic Lyceum, the oldest running theater in New York, I love the Lyceum. Awesome place. Hey, George, we have a little game here that we sometimes play with our guests called Chat Pack. And it's, it's just meant to kind of reveal certain personal things about our guests and ourselves as well. Sometimes we play along. We'll play along with you. Okay. Would you, would you enjoy doing that? Sure. Fantastic. Do you have a story about a movie that you love so much that you watch over and over and over again? God, where do I start? <laughs> Anywhere at all. Well, the one that I always end up watching is Now Voyager. It's like my go-to movie of 150 times or something like that. Does it make you happy? Does it make you sad? Does it make you all of the, the above? I just enjoy watching it. It goes from zero to 50 and back again. and But then I turn it off when... When the miserable girl comes in three quarters of the way through the movie, I can't watch it after that anymore. And you don't watch anymore to the end? Well, just towards the end, and I turn it back on. But <laughs> who, who is the miserable girl? Oh, you know, the, the boyfriend's troubled daughter that's at Cascades because her mother doesn't want to run the house. And this is She's why a little she, overacting. This is why she can't marry... Is it Claude Rains? No. I know nothing about movies. Paul Henreid. Paul Henreid. It's yes. Betty Davis and Paul Henreid. Well, and I, I, I'll throw something in. You and I lived together, mm-hmm. roomed together, mm-hmm. at sort of the beginning of the home video market. Yes. It was at the very beginning when you'd go to a store and buy a movie. I believe that was the first movie you bought. Was it? <laughs> Probably. And, and, and Probably. very, very painfully, I've just, I've done about three purges where I've gotten rid of you know, movies that, $25 was a lot of money to spend once upon a time. Oh, yeah. Just to just to carry out three trash bags of VHS movies that are of no use anymore. Right. Well, and it was probably before Turner Classic Movies came on. Do you have a go-to film, I have a a couple of go-to films. Why don't you mention one? North by Northwest. Really? That movie comes on. It's almost impossible to turn off, and it's exciting on every possible level. It's funny. It's suspenseful. It's romantic. Uh, it's it's beautifully shot. And you know that uh, when they come to Chicago, there's a shot outside the Ambassador East Hotel, which is where the famous pump room existed, and the original Booth One. Yes, that's right. So it all comes full circle. All comes full circle. The, the other thing that I we all have DVRs now. I have a permanently. I have two movies on DVR that I will if I have. 10 minutes before I want to go to bed and I need to have another sniff or snort or puff or something. And 
<laughs> or I'm waiting for what the... What are you, a magic dragon? I'm a magic dragon. If I'm waiting for my Ambien to kick in, and I need 10 more minutes before I put my head on the pillow, I'll watch a stretch of Citizen Kane, because it's always amazing filmmaking to think, how did they know to put the camera there and the they would get the reflection of the dancing girls in the mirror, in, in the window behind me. Just, so, so just magnificent filmmaking that always draws my eye. Just fantastic. And then the other Christmas movie that we talk about with Fred McMurray and um, Barbara Stanwyck, Remember the Night. So romantic and so funny and so crazy that it's a movie that we just didn't... Beulah Blondie plays his mother, correct? Yes. Yeah, at the farmhouse, yeah. Yes, and it's, That's a wonderful film. What about you? I probably, anytime it would come on or anytime I feel like watching something that is so familiar to me that makes me feel good, it's probably Lawrence of Arabia. I, I love the starkness of the, of the cinematography. Uh, of course, Peter O'Toole's performance is totally, totally mesmerizing. Not to mention Omar Sharif's performance. I just love that film as a piece of made art. I think David Lean was an understated genius. That's a real man's man movie. That's a movie that men love and women find boring. I can understand that. There's very few women in that movie. Mm -hmm. A couple of Bedouins. (laughs) But <laughs> that's it. That's and it. then you don't see anybody else. Do you find that more exciting than Natalie Wood in The Great Race, your other favorite movie? Oh, I love The Great Race. That's what I could always sit there and watch. If I need a laugh, I will put on The Great Race. Yeah. And we've watched that together, Roscoe. You yes. were kind enough to watch it with me one time. And you know, I, I, I laugh out loud at that movie dozens of times. There, there are dozens mm. of moments that just make, that just mm. make me giggle. Are you not familiar with The Great Race, or were I, you not? I, I didn't really know it until we watched it together. He has a Blu-ray, oh and my. it was sensational looking. When Larry Storch makes his entrance as Cactus Jack. Yeah. Now will you give me some fighting room? It's wacky. I love the scene in the tent at the beginning when she comes to confront him, and then they end up in the duelings with the swords. Yeah. <laughs> Gets her tied up to the pole. Yes, and, and his teeth sparkle. His teeth sparkle, and the <laughs> champagne is the champagne pops on its own, and and the parrot. But is Jack Lemmon is just hilarious, just hilarious. He's brilliant. I and I, uh, I sometimes I watch him in that role, and I think I, I think he's making a parody of himself. It looks like he's just having oh. a really funny, funny time doing this. Well, well yeah. And at, at the time that was made, they were the three biggest movie stars in the world. So it's like, hey, we'll just get together and have fun and make this movie. Well, yeah. and it is Blake Edwards. That doesn't hurt. That does not hurt. And it does have Natalie Wood. Just the other night, I had Turner Classic Movies on, and I, I missed the, the setup. But I, he was introducing... He was interviewing Nat, one of Natalie Wood's daughters, mm-hmm. who I had never seen, didn't know anything about her. And apparently there's some kind of auction coming up and some of her mother's memorabilia mm-hmm. is being sold. Any thoughts on Natalie Wood? Yeah, why do we love her? I don't know. I think it's because she was, seemed very genuine and real. She's one of those few that transitioned very effortlessly from child to adult. You know, she didn't have an awkward period on screen. She just like Elizabeth Taylor. But I think it's because she represented a very modern woman at the time when women's roles were starting to change. And 
she just had this heartbreaking honesty on the screen. She's very funny. I mean, she's an extremely good comedian, but she was always a very good dramatic actress. I mean, despite its flaws, I think West Side Story is... You can see her living the role very nicely on screen, despite the fact that she couldn't sing her own songs. But there's other movies of hers that are just equally as brilliant. She just always looks natural on the screen. Mm -hmm. She's a natural-looking actress on the screen. You don't feel like she's reading lines. It's truth and honesty. I think that's a fair assessment, George. Well-spoken. Thank Uh, you. uh, I've always liked her. I'm going to move on to our Kiss of Death segment that usually concludes our podcasts. This one is about uh, Richard Horowitz. Richard Horowitz was a timpanist and craftsman. What was he a craftsman of? I'm going to get to that. Dies at 91. In a queen's boiler room, armed with little more than a champagne cork and a length of wood, Richard Horowitz helped bring to life some of the foremost symphonic music in the world. How did he do that, you may ask? Well, I'm going to tell you. Mr. Horowitz, who died on November 2nd, as I said, at the age of 91, was a renowned musician in his own right, a retired principal timpanist of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, but in the rarefied artistic circles that were his orbit for more than half a century. He was also known as a maker of conductor's batons, Uh a fine trade plied by only a handful of people around the globe. Esteemed as a Stradivari of sticks, who do you think wrote this? Marguerite Fox. (laughs) Very good, Roscoe. (laughs) Mr. Horowitz created bespoke batons for many of the most eminent music directors of the 20th century, among them James Levine of the Met, Carl Bohm, and Leonard Bernstein. His uh, art married the skills of a physician a palm reader, a carpenter, and a Seville Road tailor. Conductors' batons are veritable extensions of their arms and must be made with heft, length, flexibility, balance, and comfort in mind. Over-the-counter models, whose sticks are often fiberglass, can weigh an ounce or more, which in the course of four Wagnerian hours can leave the hand aching. Mr. Horowitz's batons could weigh as little as a sixth of an ounce. Their sticks, which he whittled in his workshop in the boiler room of his house in Bayside, Queens, were made of birch for whippy lightness. Whippy lightness. That's... I hope my mashed potatoes come out like that. Is that an expression? I did. Whip, whippy lightness? It is now. We're going we're gonna to coin that. Have you ever heard of whippy lightness, George? Well, whippy, but yeah, I've never heard of it used in con- connection with lightness. I but. didn't either, but, but his, his, uh, the bulbs of his batons were made of cork, ideal for lightness and sweat absorbency. Something you might be interested in, Roscoe. Uh, yeah, I. Who, who occur, it never occurred to me that batons need to be sweat absorbed. Well, after four hours of Wagner, I mean, you'd mm. think, and and, and you're and they're all wearing tuxedos all the time. I, I think at the Met, the or t- tails. Yeah. Oh, you think, think so? For flinging your arms around, you're going to perspire. Before starting work, Mr. Horowitz would measure his client from elbow to fingertips and examine the meat, sinew, and overall terrain of the palm. His finished sticks ranged in length from. 10 inches for Julius Rudell to 17 inches for Leonard Bernstein. Bulbs <laughs> could assume the shape. Well, you know, I don't think that length is everything, really. Bulbs could assume the shape of a sphere, a teardrop, a bulrush, or a small congenial turnip. Bernstein was so devoted to his Horowitz batons that after his death in 1990, he was buried with one. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Richard Samuel Horowitz, born in the Bronx um, in 1924. His father was a cellist in silent picture orchestras. 
Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I became a movie theater projectionist with the coming of sound. His mother, who taught violin and piano, would proudly recall the two-year-old Dick possessed the perfect pitch, crying higher, higher from his crib whenever one of her violin students played flat. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the young Mr. Horowitz studied at Juilliard. He joined the Met Orchestra in 1946, becoming its principal timpanist in 1971. At his retirement in 2012, he just he didn't retire very long ago, just a few years ago. After 66 years and some 10,000 performances, he is believed to be the Met's longest-serving employee and one of the longest-serving orchestral musicians in the nation. Mm. 66 years. He made his first baton quite by accident in the mid-60s after Mr. Bohm broke one and, casting about for another, was told that none like it existed. Always good with his hands, Mr. Horowitz took the baton to his boiler room and emerged with such a faithful copy that his second career was born. I remember making some batons for Jose Cerebre, and the next week I read in the paper that he was conducting in Mexico and had stabbed himself with his baton, Mr. Horowitz told the New York Times in 1979. I thought, oh my God, here comes a lawsuit or something. But when he got back, he told me it was, wasn't one of my batons. It was some cheap plastic thing that he was conducting with. I felt much better after all. Richard Horowitz, timpanist and craftsman of Conductor's Batons, dead at 91. This sort of goes as a companion piece to our previous Vic Firth drumstick maker. Remember Vic Firth, yes, who was the timpanist yes. for, um, for the uh, Philharmonic, and uh, he created the modern drumstick. Here's the uh, modern uh, Conductor's Baton. I wanted to mention that some of our followers have taken to sending us photos of their Booth One experiences, either an actual photo of them sitting in a Booth One-like setting or uh, a Booth One experience that they were at. So we want to welcome any photos or postings that you'd like to send us through our website at www.booth-one.com or on our Facebook page. Just uh, post a picture and or a comment or something, and uh, we'd be happy to share that with the rest of our listeners. George, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming all the way in from Midlothian to join us today. Oh, thank you, Gary. Roscoe, always a pleasure to be with you as well. Always a pleasure to be with you. Well, I see you next time on Booth One. Take care, everyone. Thanks for joining us.